0: To the Make a Statement Podcast with Derek Robinson and Paul Kaon, presented by Mass Strategy. Let's go. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode one of Make a Statement, where we teach you what to say, how to say it, and where to say it because we believe everyone deserves to have their message heard today. Basically, we're interviewing Paul Teon MASH Strategy's own new chief strategy officer. And we're excited to talk about impossible choices that politicians face. So this is very personal to us because we have both worked in the offices of premiers. Paul's worked in three. I've only worked in one and a little bit in two. So yeah, Paul, what, <laughs> yeah, Paul, why don't you give us some of your history? What's your what's your background so people know?
1: Yeah. So I started out in business. I can give you kind of the long form story. I started out thinking that, you know, I was going to do business and I was always had a keen interest in politics. So when I came back home to Saskatchewan after doing school in Ottawa for four years, I did a stint on Parliament Hill and I was pretty satisfied with doing, you know, two to three years of part-time work for, for a minister on on Parliament Hill. And I was kind of thinking I was done with politics. And then I came back here in Saskatchewan. I got sucked into it again. Um, that guy, Derek, brought me into Premier Bradwall's office, who I said was the last politician I ever worked for. Spoiler, I worked for two more after that. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a good six and a half year long run with Premier Bradwall, with uh, working with Derek. We, I think we did a pretty good job of helping brand the Premier as one of the most effective uh, leaders in the country. And then uh, took over for Premier Mo when he became Premier and helped him you know, introduce himself to Saskatchewan people, develop his digital brand a little bit more strongly that's when and you like I, kicked
0: me you kicked me out of the office basically because you're like yeah. move aside Derek I'm taking over and then I was like fine over. I'll start my own this business partnership is done
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> no I, yeah. I left willingly Paul was nice to me he didn't kick me out oh, I was it was fun I remember you were sitting I think with your laptop outside of the office like on a shoebox or something for the last couple of weeks and I, I kind of felt bad for you but also I didn't <laughs> I, think I gave you some Petty admin work to do in that last yeah, couple of weeks. I used to be this
0: important <laughs> senior staffer. And then I was like at the intern relegated. desk for two weeks while you took over for me. So that was good. <laughs> that
1: was fun. No, I, I really enjoyed taking over for Premier Mo. Um, you know, got to work with a new senior staff team there and really got to understand, I think, a little bit more. I wasn't there in 2007 when Brad became uh, the Premier. So I didn't have a front row seat to what a new leader kind of would, would do to help make his stamp or make a statement on the office that he ho- that he holds. Um, so I think we did that pretty effectively with Premier Mo. He's done a really good job, um, even beyond me leaving. And, and to that point, I decided that it was time to go to Alberta and, and try a new adventure out. I've always kind of wanted to, uh, go out West and it was a little closer to, uh, my wife's family and, uh, made, made sense, I think from our, from our family standpoint. So I enjoyed working in Premier Kenny's office for two years, helping him get set up in a new government and, um, imprinting his brand, obviously a very seasoned politician. So it was good to work with. With a guy like that who uh you know is, is having you know a heck of a heck of a ride as premier for the first two years and uh and I, I really enjoyed that and decided that after 10 years in politics it was time to go out and build my resume on the private sector side of the ledger so i'm yeah. i'm glad to have had the 10 years of, of background experience and have finally kind of kicked the formal political habit for good except not really because we still do work in politics in this case and, and that's very fun <laughs> we'll talk about that but yeah a decade
0: of political experience with all with premiers which was amazing and I just think a shout out we can give to all the staff members we work with. Like I know in Premier Wall's office and I, I worked with a new senior team in Premier Mo's office briefly, but just fantastic people in, in those offices. Uh, obviously I don't know too many in, in Mr. Kenny's office, but you do. And I don't know what's, your, what's some of your experiences no, working with all those folks.
1: Great, great point actually. And I think it, it does deserve that th- these pol- these political servants get a, get a shout out because it's not always gratifying work. It's, it's, I don't want to call it slave labor either, but it is a grind. <laughs> it's it, close it is, to that. Yeah. It's very difficult. And, and, you know, it's not really popular to feel sorry for political staff because they are often taking the heat for their, for their politicians on the front lines and having to communicate things that are very difficult often to communicate. So, yeah. but uh, those, those political staff do a heck of a job. And uh, to those who slave it out, whether they do it for two years, five years, 10 years, um, we should all be appreciative for their service. Our country is better for it. Um, And I think that our, you know, those, those people are actually better for that service as well. They end up being decision makers and shapers in our, in our society. And I don't say that to, uh, to scratch my own back. I actually mean that of all my colleagues who I've worked with before. And I'm eternally grateful for the relationships and networks I've built in those offices.
0: Yeah, no, me too. And I always felt like of any communicators in the world that know how to make statements efficiently and with high impact and clarity, it's political staffers. You basically have to take a complicated issue in government, which are typically very confusing and convoluted, and you have to sort of pick what you're going to say and help your minister or your premier say it. It's not easy to do. And you're doing it sort of on a daily basis, whether in question period in the legislature or through news releases and different announcements. It's quite intense. And so if there's anyone out there that's listening to this, that's like, should I hire someone that was a former political staffer? Yes, they are actually quite skilled and they have very good connections and you should do that. So I I know we're always kind of looking for people that have political experience to hire and um, anybody else should definitely consider those folks as well.
1: Yeah, they're just, they're the great hard workers. And I think at the end of the day, um, they have a lot of helpful insights to share on how the sausage get, gets made behind the scenes. A lot of us, you know, can be armchair quarterbacks when we don't really see what's going on. And, you know, we think this is a, a disaster of a, of a scenario and really the political staff behind the scenes are giving it all they've got to try and keep the thing together. Um, so, so well, yeah. In like, a crisis.
0: Like I know we managed it when there was provincial fires and you've done uh, COVID work with primers as well. But I know fires and floods, all those things like the political Boys staffers bills. are on the front lines with also, I guess we could say some great public servants as well. Uh, people don't understand the difference between political staff and you know public servants or the civil service. Uh, but basically your political staff, just so everybody knows this, are the ones that primarily work with your minister or your premier. They deal with kind of the political decisions, making sure it aligns with the electoral mandate, uh, communicating those political decisions and, and helping you know give that information to the public. Uh, where the your public servants are more doing research, um, recommending policies, and, and then implementing the policies rather than kind of making the decisions all the time and, and communicating the decisions. So that's going to be, but I, I and, worked with fantastic public, public servants, you know.
1: Right. And to, to be yeah. clear, the, the public servants stay when there's a change in government for the most part, yeah. and political staff change when the government changes for the most part because the political staff are loyal to the politicians who are elected. And, uh, and it's typical that a government newcoming government would not keep the same political staff of a different partisan leaning, uh, than their own party We
0: served at the pleasure of the premier is how you would say it. So if, if, if Bradwell was not the premier anymore, we would get fired promptly. So that was, yeah. So the political staffers do not have good job security either because their leader could change or get defeated in an election. So anyways. Talking about uh, being an armchair quarterback and figuring out how the sausage gets made, as you referenced earlier, there's a lot of our armchair quarterbacks these days in politics. And we're sort of having this episode to sort of explain to people what happens behind the scenes when these decisions get made of politicians and how, you know, there seems to be always upset people no matter what happens. And I feel like that's only increasing with social media and the misinformation that's all happening out there. Paul, you've worked in this. In both provinces, you've seen the differences. What are your general thoughts?
1: Yeah, I just think the temperature dial has been raised uh, consistently. There's, There's a league of people who are highly attuned to every single thing going on in the political environment. And that's that's true in Saskatchewan. It's becoming a lot more true in Saskatchewan, but it it has been true in Alberta for quite some time since there's been obviously a a change. I I honestly, I think it could probably draw it back to Premier Redford uh, in Alberta. And I I remember watching that unfold in Saskatchewan and always kind of wondering if one day I would be part of the Alberta political scene, because it seemed like a pretty cool place to to learn how, you know, learn the ropes and learn kind of what was going on and um, but, but it's, it's for sure that, you know, being an observer of that political scene is a lot different than being in that political scene and being a part of it. And it, it sure was eye opening to be part of that for first two years okay, so in Alberta.
0: Just tell me the difference between Saskatchewan and Alberta politics. What, what are th- the key differences?
1: I think Saskatchewan people are just generally more, they want to kind of believe their government is generally doing the right thing. And from what I've observed in my couple of years here in Alberta, Albertans are a lot more skeptical of, of government and just generally kind of try to avoid government in their lives, wherever it doesn't need to be there. Um, right. So where Saskatchewan people generally have a little more faith in government, Albertans, a little more skeptical, a little more kind of leave me alone government. I'll do what I need to more do. More libertarian. Stay in your, yeah. Stay in your lane. Yeah. Yeah. And I notice in
0: Alberta politics these days, it seems like, you know, Jason Kenney aside, I think no matter what political leader was sort of hand, handling COVID in Alberta, it would have been a tremendous struggle. And I know you saw that uh, working in Kenny's office during the whole COVID thing, sort of explain how some of those decisions were filtered through sort of behind the scenes and how it kind of maybe felt the response was going to be once those decisions were made.
1: Sure. Maybe I'll just lay the groundwork for folks for the like the political environment. I don't think it'll be a shock to to most people who've either watched at one point or another that um, Alberta had been going through five years of economic struggle and stagnation. And so this is all kind of building up. And I felt like in 2019, late 2019, early 2020, we started to kind of see a bit of a turning of the corner. We really felt like 2020 was going to be a turnaround year. We had positive signs. Oil prices were uh, building up higher. Uh, A lot of economic indicators were trending in the right direction. Um, A lot of people were feeling good about 2020. And then we got slammed by a pandemic, which as people know, it was a triple black swan event in Alberta. We had obviously the global economic recession. We had the OPEC, Russia, Russia, Saudi oil price war, which tanked oil prices to negative 30 bucks a barrel at one point. <laughs> and, and then this doesn't make sense to me. Negative 30, like I have to pay yeah, to Here, take my and oil and I'll pay you yeah, $30 like, for this barrel. <laughs> yeah, and now
0: it's like 60 bucks a barrel and everyone's like, oh, it's gonna go 70. Yeah, like it's, that is so dramatic.
1: It's just such a once in a lifetime. Yeah, situation. try and base yeah. a budget on that, right? Yeah, easy, <laughs> totally easy, yeah. No so that's that. And then, of course, the economic crisis that just was deepened here in Alberta, apart from the global economic crash. So we had those three kind of events just completely sideswiped the province. And it was, um, you already had kind of an electorate that was hoping for change, hoping for things really to turn around and then this hits us. And so you know, the first element is obviously just shock, right? Everybody's just completely shocked this is happening. Right. How you know, responding to that shock. Generally, people are pretty willing to forgive their politicians for the first little bit as they're responding to it. Yeah. Um, but almost instantly I remember it was it was just it was just responding to the whims of of whatever the public was kind of asking for. And and actually the, the media played a decent role in that too, because they would often be observing trends in other provinces and other countries, and they would say, well, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you closing schools down? Why aren't you doing that? And so there was a lot of back and forth between how the media would influence the public, a public highly attuned to watching the news and politicians having to respond to that. Um, So it it made for a really interesting show. And uh, to give a little more background on the sausage making, all decisions um, would go to a advisory cabinet committee. It had gone through a few different kind of name convention changes, but essentially there was a core group of cabinet ministers the chief medical officer of health that were in charge of kind of the decision making around mm. COVID restrictions, and then um, how how we would try and you know prevent the spread of COVID nineteen while still trying to protect people's livelihoods at the same time.
0: Right. Yeah, I felt like in Alberta it was like it was the most free place in Canada for restrictions for some period of time, and I it sounded like the government was pretty happy about that, and and that sort of goes to the bend, the libertarian bent of Alberta. But then all of a sudden the situation kind of shifted where Alberta was the hotspot for COVID in Canada for one reason or another, and then the restrictions had to come.
1: Our memory is so, I think our memory is so, um, it's so short term when it comes to COVID. We've been in this for 15 months. And I think folks forget that, remember the the resurgence or the insurgence of COVID was in Quebec and Ontario. We had thousands of people dying in seniors care homes. And yet here in Alberta, while well, we had done a you know a pretty good job of locking down, there's a lot of hindsight that we could offer to our situation for sure. Uh, But we had done a pretty good job of mitigating COVID, like you said, with a a light touch on restrictions. we gotten up until that really well with that up until the fall when we had that wave after Thanksgiving hit. And then it was like all hell broke loose. And it was just like, how do we, how do we deal with this? Now we have a resurgence in case resurgence in cases, people who are not willing to want to um, buckle down on restrictions and others who are, are asking, when are the restrictions coming? It's been, you know, we see the case numbers growing. What are you doing about it? So Try, try being the politician in that case with a completely divided electorate and almost no room in the middle.
0: And, and that's how I sort of felt was this impossible choices thing that Jason Kenney was in, is that he was trying to keep it open and free and, you know, kind of along aligning with Alberta's uh, sort of culture in a lot of ways. And now he has to lock everything down because that was really the only solution because there was no vaccines at any level yet. And, you know, you could blame Trudeau a little bit for that, but that gets a little bit old every week going out saying that. So then you have people on sort of in his base and a lot, mostly in rural Alberta, but also in cities as well, that a good portion of them think it's just a scam and Mm. they don't know anyone personally affected by COVID. They're not following, you know, what's happening in India and other parts of the world where it's just the, you know, massive humanitarian crisis in different ways. And then you have the people that are mostly on the left for whatever reason that just believe that everything should be locked down. And so even if he did incredible strict lockdowns, it still was never enough. And then you have people in the middle that are just mad because everyone else is mad. And it's just like, it just sort of all collided together <laughs> in this big, massive anger towards the premier. And I, like, I of watching it from afar and being like, this seems really bad.
1: Yeah, interestingly enough, if you looked at the polling and there was various amounts of polling and a lot of it is public, you could see it, you know, whether it's um, well-known people like Janet Brown doing polling or others where we've seen people are generally satisfied with where the government landed on restrictions. And then if you ask them, are you satisfied with how, what a, what a job the government's done in terms of implementing those restrictions, they're, they're not happy. And so it's like, hang on, you like the restrictions or you like where things are at. You think it's a good balance, but you don't like the people who've done that. So it there's obviously a bit of a dissatisfaction with, with, politicians maybe part of that is political fatigue people seeing their politicians yeah. every day on tv seeing them almost as the faces of covid right and and is that something that is the politicians could avoid probably not because the moment that you step out of the spotlight people are saying where's my leadership why are they why are they not yeah. there and then the moment yeah. they're there you know day in and day out it's like i don't want to hear the politicians i want to hear the scientists so, like, yeah. make up your mind right but yeah,
0: the, the public was just <laughs> delusional in some ways of what, everything that was going on. And it's just, they, they were just like a, my kid that you just can't control no matter what you do sometimes. And I even think like Brian Pallister was being, you know, crying on TV and being like, you know, I'm the guy who ruined Christmas and all that sort of thing. And it's just like, when you look at the government it's like, they're the ones that ruined Christmas. They're the ones that kept my kid from playing hockey. They're the ones that ruined my wedding or like whatever it is, right? And it's yeah. like, it's fair, but it's like, what do you expect? it's also do. yeah it's
1: tale as old as time right I mean blame the government when things don't go well right. and I, I I'm easy, as guilty of it time. as anybody else yeah of course it's like I'll just blame the government because I don't make my problems go away uh no it won't uh, but at the same time I mean you have you raised a good point I mean a guy like Brian Pallister and and I, I mean, one could argue whether it was kind of for theatrics or not the the show that he put on right before christmas but these politicians have had actually said this in variations you know the premier was in the house the other day of saskatchewan sorry scott moe um and 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 it was i i was quite moved by what i saw he he talked about yeah all the tough choices of people in care homes um, having to isolate those folks not letting them see their grandkids and grandkids not being able to see their grandparents and yeah. and sometimes kids and their parents and and so you think about that on a level where you know it's easy to criticize that decision to somebody from the outside but imagine being that person that politician who had to make yeah. the final call to say no restaurants are shut down and they have to be shut down for the good of what going through right now to minimize the impact on people's lives. But that also means that I'm going to ruin this person's business. And I don't have a choice. There is no good choice at this point in time. To yeah. so those folks who say, well, you could have just left everything open. No, you couldn't have. It's not, it, you. there would have been no public tolerance for people leaving things completely open to the detriment of our hospitals and the healthcare workers going through that day in and day out, dealing with patients in and out of the ICUs. we would have had people flooding, uh, patients flooding into field hospitals, which were prepared, by the way, in Alberta. We had facilities prepared to take in, you know, if, if the numbers got way out of hand. And they didn't because our politicians made the choices that nobody wanted them to
0: make. Well, they, they didn't sign up to, to do this job. Like, this is a horrendous job that they have to do. And, and, I, and they know, don't kid yourself, everyone listening to this, they know most of the restrictions kind of don't make sense in lots of ways, but they still have to make the decisions. Yeah. So it's like, I get it. My church follows the regulations. Why lock down all the churches? Why lock down my restaurant? That restaurant was fine. It, it didn't violate the rules while well, there was 10 that did violate the rules and they caused a huge, massive spreading incident. So it's like, you know, but you don't see all that. And it's, it's so frustrating. Um, I know for these leaders because they don't want to do it. They know it doesn't make sense. And they're regular people like you or I, like, you know, when you talk to them, they're very good-willed. I've never met, a, I haven't met anyone in politics yet, like an actual elected politician, where I don't think they're actually a good person. After I
1: talk. Yeah, and that goes for left of center, right of center. That's across Absolutely. the spectrum. People in politics, whether they're of a partisan bend that I certainly don't agree with or, or one that I certainly do agree with, none of those people are in politics generally for the wrong reasons. Everyone I've met, like Derek has said, has been in it for the right reasons. And whether I agreed with them or not, I respected their public service for what they did. Um, it's yeah, it, it can't be said enough, whether you're talking about politicians or political staff, right?
0: I think the other thing that we're seeing and we we deal with this uh, on a daily basis, being digital people and digital communicators, but the level of misinformation on social media, and even in like the comment sections that it's just like an all out brawl nowadays for, for politicians. Like I remember when we started Brad Wall's Facebook and Twitter and, and whatnot, it wasn't like that. Like it, it was like fairly rational like you'd have the odd weirdo kind of saying something crazy but now it's just like it's just flooded with people that are just saying insane things and threatening politicians lives and whatnot and it's like these are regular human beings and you're treating them like they're they're less yeah. than human like to your to you your treat animals better than you're treating
1: your politicians like it's, yeah you're, you're very right fellow. about that i think we were lucky with with brad too because he was he was genuinely a very popular politician in the province yes. I, and to, I to my, to what I said earlier, I think I recall seeing the sort of resurgence of that commentary. I don't think it was a, an isolated trend. I think it was happening elsewhere in the world, but especially with premier Redford in Alberta like her or hater or, or public service, obviously there's lots to criticize there, but there was incredible amounts of vitriol that went yeah. out uh, towards her. And I, I think I recall kind of seeing the tide turn, especially in Alberta then, and then it kind of has started to percolate into Saskatchewan's political theater yeah. discussion as well um these days and there's certain actors that are responsible for that
0: i was listening to john gormley on uh who's cjme cqm in saskatchewan kind of the talk show radio host in the morning um really well known he was sort of saying it's turned for him too, where for some reason during this pandemic with all the misinformation and all the anger and the frustration he's getting death threats and you know he's been doing it for you know, 20 years or 25 years or something on the radio, the texts and emails that he gets, he's like, I don't, where are these people coming from? Like, what did I do to you (laughs) sort of thing? And like, and mostly people that were sort of on the scamdemic side of things. And he's just like, there's never been an issue like this that has enraged people. And it's not like Gormley's like a big pro restrictions guy. He's not. But even just the fact that he's sort of accepting some of the things, some of the restrictions and understand you know, they're reasonable for lots of different reasons. Like people just like wanted to cancel him. It's just like, I think it's part of the cancel culture is like, you need to cancel all the politicians. As soon as they make a mistake, they run these giant organizations that are responsible for so much in the world. There's going to be things you guys, I don't care. Like, I think no matter who you elect, you're going to hate them nowadays. And it's just not realistic.
1: And during COVID, I mean, perfection was the enemy of the good, right? The reason yeah. that every, everybody I had to make that. difficult choices, yeah, was because we had no time to move. Nobody, I mean, to expect your politicians to make perfect choices in this kind of environment, let alone at a normal time, in this kind of environment, in a once-in-a-century pandemic, is just completely unreasonable. Um, I... I I, to your point about social media trolls, I think it's just—and maybe we'll cover this in another episode later on—but this this veil of anonymity, I think, that allows people to make these kinds of threats and these kinds of statements to people. um You know, let, leave aside criticism and fair criticism. I think that's that's totally fair game. If you want to criticize a politician's choices reasonably in a civil manner on social media, go for it. That's your prerogative. Go for it. Um, but to take that to another complete level with threats and um, the level of name calling and and personal <laughs> degradation that people employ on social media, it's it's embarrassing. It's shameful. And I, I, yeah. I don't really know what the solution is. I think that the platform itself offers kind of that benefit of anonymity at a certain level, but also it's caused our, our civil discourse to degrade. Uh, to it a used level to be just
0: people closed. that had like fake names and they were just like eggs on Twitter. Like they're like, like they weren't real people. They were just like made up people. But now I like, I almost see like real people that it's like, I could call up they like work in businesses and stuff that are doing that sort of thing and i'm like wh- when did this become acceptable that we're allowed to just like name call in the most unfair or hurtful way possible to our po- and like they're just punching bags now it's yeah, like but do you think
1: do you think these losers of these armchairs would actually make those threats in public like i got i got to kind of wonder i don't think they would either i think they you, like, if they actually stood up to you or i if they made that threat to me on social media and then actually stood up to me not that I'm someone of very tall stature, but if they stood up to me anyways, <laughs> I don't think they would actually have the balls to make that that kind of no assertion. No, they wouldn't. And
0: like, I've always found people when they meet politicians in person, they're actually quite respectful other than maybe the few activists that try to disrupt a public meeting or whatnot. But yeah, like, it's just like, my thing is if you're not willing to say that to someone's face, why say it on social media to them? Because they read it and it's like mental health of our leaders is actually like a legitimate concern. And like, we actually want good people to go into politics. You know, I've seen enough now that I'm like, I don't really want to put my family through this. Yeah. Like, I've run for politics before and I wasn't successful, but it's like I'm almost happy because I see what's going on. And I'm like, is this really the life that I want to lead for the amount of pay that it is? People think they're overpaid and whatnot. I'm kind of like, I kind of want to attract better people, and, and money is an incentive to do that, especially at a a provincial level where they don't get paid that much.
1: Yeah. The reasons for running are starting to like counter a lot more against than for, for a lot of people. It's, it, you know, I'm not yeah. saying that we have the absolute most perfect people. I don't think anybody asserts that we have the most perfect people in politics, but if you wanted no, better no. people in politics, do you think subjecting them to this level of kind of discourse and this kind of environment, it, whether it's social media or just kind of the conduct of people in general towards their politicians, do you think that's going to help you get better politicians um, by saying that they're overpaid, they should work for nothing, Nothing. They should get um, a complete cut and pay. That they should, you know, fire all the political staff. How? how who do you think you're going to draw to the political arena when you make all those kinds of calls?
0: We could probably do a big episode about cancel culture and <laughs> social media trolls because it is. It sort of feeds from that, I think. Too. It's like someone does something wrong and you you don't agree with them politically, so you just want to cancel them and get rid of them. I get it. You know, we've maybe been guilty of that in some of the work we've done in the past, right? But it's as a general rule, it's like, you can't go over the line. And I just feel like there's so many people over the line where it's not criticism. It's just like you as a human being are horrible and you should not exist. Like that, that's sort of the level that like a good chunk of the, di- like a third of the discourse is now. And I'm like, whoo, like that's pretty intense. So anyways, like we, we don't have to belabor this point too much, but I think the fact is we're just kind of encouraging people to, to give some of these leaders a break. In some ways, and try to have a little more civility, and you know, on social media, try to talk to them like you're talking to them in person, uh, rather than talking behind their back to their face on social media. Yeah, uh, that's I think that's maybe the message here, and just knowing that you're never going to have a perfect political leader.
1: No, and to the point of actually, I'll even take this a bridge further, even even beyond just our political leaders. We've kind of seen other uh, one significant public servant, typically in each province, come forward. Um, who's been a notable figure of late, our chief medical officers of health, um, whether it's Dr. Saqib Shahab in Saskatchewan, Dr. Bonnie Henry in BC, um, Dr. Dina Hinshaw in Alberta, um, and and the, and the litany of them across the country who have been front and center you know, quote unquote stars in the media who've been responsible for making a lot of these tough decisions or providing the recommendations to make tough decisions yeah. have been put in the spotlight to answer all of the tough questions on, on a granular level for media and from the public and have also been subjected to ridiculously unfair, harsh criticism threats. Um, and, and, you know, to all of those public servants, I just tip my hat to you. Um, they didn't sign up for that job either, um yes they make you know a decent wage they are they're entitled to that they are they make less than their counterparts in the private sector i could probably assure you of that oh, sure uh, so so they deserve respect and I, I just i want to tip my hat to them as well in, in in the lumping them in with politicians especially during this last 15 months absolutely well I think that's
0: probably good for today. Probably not the most popular episode we could have picked for the first one is like, give politicians a break. They have some impossible choices to face people. Like that was the, like, if you're trying to have a popular podcast, this is probably the worst idea you could have come up with. But
1: But in fairness, who else is going to defend politicians, but the people who formerly worked for them. Right. So let's Let's at least shed some insight on that. I think that the cause was was noble. Hopefully it gives people an opportunity to think maybe twice um, if If they know somebody who has spoken out a little bit in a, in a different way, this gives them a chance to say, "Hey, you know what? These people actually do have tough decisions to make let's let's cut them a little bit of, of of a break here and let's make sure that we actually take into account all the choices they have to make that we don't have to. yeah,
0: and the balance that they have to achieve, which is impossible nowadays, especially and uh, some Western Canadian provinces that we're seeing. So, well, we hope things are going to go better and uh, everybody stays safe. And I think we're going to be through this thing soon. Hopefully this, uh, that, you know, the science keeps changing all the time. So we'll actually see that's the other possible thing that we could have talked about, but we'll end it there for now. Paul, great insights, man.
1: Yeah, this is a good conversation. Uh, yeah. If you're one of those people, like Derek said, we're at the, almost at the end of this thing. Get vaxxed, get your vaccinations, so we can all get back to normal. That's, that's where we're headed.
0: Yep, I'm, I'm all vaxxed up. I got my Pfizer superpowers now, so I feel pretty good about that. Moderna
1: Moderna crew over here. You got any Moderna superpowers? Good. I
0: don't know what, <laughs> what abilities you have achieved. Um, we'll find mine, out. Mine is making unpopular podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one I, I've selected. So. All right. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. We'll talk to everybody again on uh, statement Podcasts.